Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Big Talk Productions' Kenton Allen about new Stephen Merchant comedy drama The Outlaws. Screenwriters Eric Forestier and Dominic Rocher discuss French fantasy drama The Rope and Principal Media's Gary Rosenson reveals his very personal connection to feature documentary Rock Camp The Movie. The Outlaws is a new six-part comedy drama from The Office co-creator Stephen Merchant in which he stars together with Hollywood heavyweight Christopher Walken among a band of strangers forced together by community service sentences in the English city of Bristol. The show from ITV Studios' own Big Talk Productions began airing on the BBC this week and is a co-production with Amazon Studios. Though filming was hit early on by the onset of the Covid pandemic, a second season was quickly commissioned while the shoot was on hiatus and work on that continues. Big Talk Chief Executive Kenton Allen spoke to Michael Pickard about making the series, previously known as The Offenders, ahead of its debut. He also talked about the company's busy schedule with fellow BBC comedy The Goes Wrong Show, plus a US version of Channel 4's Friday Night Dinner in the works. Alan also discussed the challenges of maintaining production, not only due to the pandemic, but the ongoing boom in demand for content and the staff to crew shows. So, Kenton, welcome uh, to C21. Thank you for joining us. Uh, how are things with you at the moment? What are kind of the projects that are front and centre for you? Well, Michael, today is a momentous day at Big Talk. We are responsible for the majority of BBC One's primetime schedule. So at 8.30, we have episode four of The Goes Wrong Show going out from the Mischief Comedy team. And at nine o'clock, off the back of that, uh, we have the launch of Stephen Merchant's The Outlaws, which is his new uh, hour-long comedy thriller Start Starring, written by, directed by Stephen Merchant and starring Stephen, Christopher Walken, Eleanor Tomlinson and a, a, a brilliant cast of um, familiar faces and brand new faces. So we have 90 minutes of primetime BBC One on the go. So that's exciting. And then we wrapped a show on Saturday, which I can't tell you about because it's subject to hundreds of NDAs. And if I did tell you, they'd have to hunt you down and not kill you, but certainly silence you. Uh, so we finished that on Saturday and we start shooting. In fact, we've just turned over. It's five past ten in the morning on Robert Popper's new uh, comedy for Channel Four called "I Hate You." Fantastic! So, I mean, it sounds like you're incredibly busy. I mean, how how are you just finding things at the moment? You know, as we emerge slowly from from the pandemic and and the industry kind of rolls on, how how are things for you at this point? Well, they're pretty challenging, actually. I mean, there are huge opportunities, obviously, because of the huge growth in buyers of content, and there are huge challenges because of the huge opportunities and the amount of production that's happening. So, I don't think it's ever been more difficult to make a show and that goes from you know the, the challenge of covid which is still a very real thing and it's still costing a fortune and presenting lots and lots of challenges in terms of continuing to shoot with covid so you know still virulently alive in the country and then the kind of i guess the the, the, the benefits of a boom are that everybody is working uh, and the downside of a boom is that, that there aren't enough people so we are reaching a, a kind of I, w- I would say almost breaking point in terms of the ability to, to 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 put a show together and to shoot it when you want to shoot it there are not enough people available there's not enough of a workforce and obviously film and tv is not the only industry that's experiencing this but it's pretty acute in 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 film and tv at the moment there is a there is a dramatic lack of of 
a skilled workforce to make all the shows that want to be made. So we're having to move productions to when crew are available rather than when we want to make it. Is that across the board or would you say that's in certain kind of areas of expertise? It's pretty much across the board. I mean, you name the, the department and it's hard to get the best in class people. So production accountants, for example, there's a, there's a dramatic lack of them. But in everything from DOPs to to uh, costume, makeup, wardrobe, production teams, gaffers, the lot, there is a there is a desperate lack of availability. There's a friend of mine who was two weeks into a shoot on a project and the gaffer walked off the show because he'd been offered a lot more money to go and work somewhere else. And they phoned, I think they phoned 92 gaffers, not just in the U- in the UK, but in Ireland and in, in Europe and couldn't identify anybody that could do it. So they ended up moving the shoots by four weeks, which I think cost them a million quid. So it's pretty stark, the problem. On the Outlaws, we ended up working with four line producers. You know, we were losing people left, right and centre to, to other jobs. Often, other jobs where better funded shows were doubling or in some cases tripling their weekly rate. So it's tricky. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what's the answer to that? Is it is it more training and, and more recruiting or is it, high, you know, are you having to just raise wages in the short term to secure the talent that you want? Well, yeah, costs are going up, definitely. So yes, it's more expensive to make shows because things cost what they cost. So take a generator, for example. Man has generator. He says it's £1,500 a week. You say, I've got £800 in the budget. That used to be a negotiation. It's now you either pay £1,500 a week or he sells it to somebody else. So things now cost what they cost. There's no ducking diving. There's no negotiating. It's just that's what the, that's what the market rate is. And, and you can sort of name your price. And the same is on people. And the answer is, you know, it starts at government, starts at further education, starts at film schools and universities. And, and it's about training and ensuring we have a skilled workforce at the right size that can that can cope with the huge amount of domestic production and the huge amount of international production that's going on. And if you look, you know, just look at the if you look at the scenario that we're looking at, for example, Sky Studios opens in Hertfordshire next. Yeah, seventeen stand stages. Don't know how they're going to crew them. That's a massive increase in in production capability. But I don't know where the people are coming to crew all those um, sets and the studios. Uh, look at the Lord of the Rings arriving in the UK. Half a billion pounds worth of production just being dropped into the marketplace. They could sort of afford to pay whatever it takes, but that that's going to have a dramatically inflationary impact on on the marketplace. And the real threat, I suppose, is to the PSBs because the license fees haven't gone up from the PSBs, certainly in the last 10 to 15 years. You know, it's still a one-hour drama. It's still funded at around 800 to £900,000 an episode by the BBC and ITV and Channel 4 and to a certain extent Sky. So those license fees aren't going up. Rates, the cost is going up. We, we, we think we're looking at 10 to 20% inflation this year. So the need for co-production is ever more present and that obviously has an impact on what you can make in the long term because those those co-producers are not necessarily that interested in smaller British domestic stories with talent they've never heard of. Absolutely. So, so does that mean you're looking further afield for, for financing or um, you know how, how do you kind of solve this problem in, in the short term? In the short term I suppose you obviously you try and negotiate a better license fee from your domestic broadcaster. You have the benefit of the of the high-end tax credit which is helps immensely and then you either looking for a very well-disposed distributor who is capable or able to put a substantial advance down against future sales or you're looking for a co-producer and it's particularly acute in half-hour comedy because half-hour comedy you know the the, the um, threshold for qualifying for tax 
credit, rules out a lot of half-hour comedy. So the next Fleabag, which every American streamer says they want, won't happen unless we're very, very careful. And don't forget that all the American streamers passed on Fleabag until Series 1 was produced and then Amazon snapped it up. But they might say they all want it, but they won't recognise it when it comes along. And there will be a real threat to it actually being able to be produced at the kind of licence fees that the, the domestic PSB can pay. And when you look at the very real costs of making those shows, because the cost inflation is across the board, uh, and it's particularly challenging for half-hour comedy. Absolutely. I mean, and do you find, you know, that like you just kind of alluded to, and I think it's been spoken about previously that, you know, everyone says they want to work with new talent and find the next gem, you know, as you say, with Phoebe Waller-Bridge as one example, but are they really willing to, to back those words? And does it then fall to the PSBs to kind of bring that talent through? No, it's absolutely. That, and that's sort of the, the that's the obvious opportunity for the UK PSBs is to, is to double down on new talent in front of and behind the camera, trying to accelerate that, you know, and that will, that plays into the skills base issues and into the new talent issues. But those shows are very, are impossible, I would say, to co-produce. You know, your American co-producers are not interested in those shows until there's a proof of concept, i.e. one series, or be there a hit. So that that's becoming quite acute when you're looking at license fees of around 250, pounds per half hour from your domestic PSBs. The show, it becomes, you know, it becomes a loss-making business if you're not careful, and that's not the way forward. So there are a few things that can happen there. Can the high-end tax credit threshold be reduced? I don't think the DCMS is very focused on that at the moment. That's And we've been banging away for years about that. And can licence fees be increased for half-hour comedy in particular? So they're comparable with drama. Because it's essentially the same thing. It's a single-camera scripted show. Comedy talent is traditionally more expensive than drama talent because there's less of it. So it, it commands a premium. And look at the value chain and, and what something like Fleabag created and generated and the talent that it launched. That's got to be worth investing in. But you're looking at a, at a, at a comedy tariff, which is less than half of a drama tariff. I, I would I would volunteer that British comedy breaks more stars, breaks more talent, um, gives um, opportunities and more writers that go on to do amazing things than the British drama. You wouldn't have Succession and Jesse Armstrong without Channel 4's um, support of Peep Show over eight, nine seasons. And so, I, you know, I think that, I think it's a real, a, a, a huge issue for the industry. It's a particularly a huge issue for half-hour scripted comedy. You know, Big Talk is known for comedies and dramas and break, you know, working with lots of great talent. I mean, how would you define your approach to those relationships and, and perhaps finding the next success or, or maintaining those relationships with existing stars? Our approach is to find people whose work we love and then to try and facilitate that being made at the highest possible standard and level. That's the only way you can work. Who Do we love them? Do we love what they do and what they have to say? Can we give them what they deserve and get behind them? And so far it's gone okay. And there's a, there's a couple of new people on the blocks that we're working with that we think have the ability to go all the way. But we're having to make, you know, we're making blaps with them at, at you know, sub £100,000 licence fees, investing our own money in it, hoping that that will lead to something bigger and bolder. But that is a capital-intensive, labour-intensive, cost-intensive, long strategy. You know, you're looking at three to five years to grow somebody from, you saw them at Edinburgh, or they've made a video that you saw on Twitter, or you read their first script, to them having a hit show. It's a long period of, of uh, R&D. 
So you have to balance that out with something like The Offenders, working with Stephen Merchant, you know, him doing his first one hour, so his drama deal, comedy thriller, whatever you want to call it, scripted one hour, and putting the finance together where the BBC are paying 30% of the cost and Amazon are picking up, you know, the rest. Mm-hmm. So you have to, it's a mixed economy. You have to have, you have to pull on all those levers so that one sort of gives you permission to do the other. Tell us a bit more about the Outlaws then, because you know it's. Um, I've, I've seen three episodes and I really liked it, and and it's it's had a great journey because season two has been commissioned before season one has aired. So tell us a bit about that partnership with the BBC, Amazon, and and you know getting season two so early off, off the books. Yeah, well, the BBC, um, it was Shane Allen and um, and Kate Dalton. We it's and that the journey to sitting them a script was three years because I originally read an American version of it that Stephen had written with Elgin James, and, and I met him on the script just as a just for a general chat and had read the American version and said if you don't want to do a British version we'd, I'd love to have that conversation with you and then I guess about two years later he said he just emailed me and said oh I wrote an English version of that or a British version of that script which we loved and then I think it's the fastest green light thing we've ever had we sent it to Charlotte Moore and Shane Allen on a Thursday and they greenlit it the following Tuesday but obviously greenlit it without the ability to make it without co-production because it's a you know it's a relatively expensive show uh, and then we went to LA with Steve and pitched it um, to all the, norm, the the usual suspects and Amazon uh, became our preferred partners on it and then we started shooting I can't remember what it was I think it was November of 2019 and then we got shut down 12 days later in that first big lockdown and then during that lockdown Kate Daunton of the BBC said why doesn't Stephen write series 2 why we're all sat around twiddling our thumbs, which he went, that's a good idea. So during that first massive lockdown, he wrote season two, the BBC then greenlit it, then Amazon came on board and said, extremely unusually for them, because they don't ever normally greenlight a second season until the first season has been up on their service for obvious reasons. But they had seen 12 days of material, they read the scripts, and then rather brilliantly, and rather brilliantly for an American company, they changed their protocol and said, okay, yeah, we'll do it. So we were lucky enough to then have two seasons to shoot back to back, which then became a mammoth shoot. That's 12 hours of drama in Bristol. And we wrapped last Thursday on day 201, I think it was. Uh, So everyone's a bit tired. And we're still in post on series one. We've got series two post to start and complete. And the show's on air tonight. Bloody hell. (laughs) I mean, did that that really help um, the finances and and the, the, the staffing shooting it back to back or was that another negotiation to then get it you know to continue running it so quickly after season one well it's it's, it's interesting Mike, actually i mean it's it's it prevented it it presented its own challenges because you know the the guys that work on the shows they used to be on jobs for six months and then going on to something else so retaining a, a crew across what for some people was a two-year you know a two-year job and john butler who is the sort of co was in the writing room with steven and co-wrote episodes and has directed five of them he started on this show July 2019 and he's still in you know I think he's just wrapped now that's an enormously long period of time for a, a freelance director writer to be on a show and the same is true of line producers producers production accountants makeup wardrobe keeping that keeping that circus together and keeping everybody from getting t- 
tired of it or not being tempted by something that looks shiny and new. The words Bridgerton round the corner in Bristol or just having their salary, their weekly rate doubled or trebled. It's, been, it's pretty challenging. I mean, we were, as I said, we got through four line producers, all sorts of movement in crew and production team. And it's tricky. I mean, I understand, you know, that it's if, you, if you're used to a rhythm of your of your working life is you do a job for three to six months and then move on to something else. And staying with us for two years is pretty challenging, uh, particularly when rates are going up, people are offering you more money, there are other jobs that sound exciting and, and tantalising in Bristol. When we started shooting in Bristol, we were the only show there. There are now, I think there are seven shows shooting there now, including Bridgerton, which has, you know, gazillions of pounds to spend and will spend it and don't, and don't care. They don't care about British talent and the British industry. They just want to make their show and they'll pay what it takes. So it's it's not straightforward. I mean, how, how does a... Uh, an operation like the Outlaws compared to something like the Goes Wrong show, which is obviously much more studio based. I guess by by that means much more con- you know contained. Um, you know, with a set cast who are obviously so involved behind the scenes. How how does one production compare to the other? Well, every production is, is unique. Every has its unique challenges and its unique opportunities. I mean, Goes Wrong show is an incredibly complicated multi-camera comedy that has endless stunts and physical comedy in it. Physical comedy is in incredibly labour intensive and time intensive we're lucky to have the guys the mischief guys and their brilliant company of actors who are brilliant physical comedians so that, that you know that's as challenging as the offenders but for different reasons I guess just because of the complexity of making a a lot of what ostensibly a live physical comedy show shooting in two you know rehearsing for two weeks and shooting it in two or three days has, has that been I guess having to film that during a pandemic has that been sort of uh, challenging in, in other ways that you didn't have on the outlaws yeah i mean physical comedy involves close physical contact so yeah all the cha- all the covid protocol challenges there are immense in terms of how do you rehearse it how do you shoot it how do you keep everybody safe that's been immensely challenging you can't socially distance physical comedy it ain't funny but that presents its own challenges which you know we've now been shooting under covid for two years so i think we we've got pretty good pro- our own protocols and throw into the mix every single buyer has their own protocols which change all the time so amazon's the bbc Channel 4, Skies, you know, everyone's got a different version of their own COVID protocols. So, you know, the additional, I guess the other thing is the additional pressure on production team. And now, apart from the challenge of making the show, line producers and production teams are also dealing with COVID protocols, environmental concerns, diversity issues, um, tax credit qualification. You know, there's a huge amount of, of additional admin and um, hurdles to overcome in terms of making sure the show conforms to everybody's um, requirements. Anti-bullying protocols now that we we rightly so have to build into it. So the workload has gone through the roof in terms of what you have to do, rightly so, to make sure your show is compliant with all these environmental health and welfare of the uh, crew, tax credit issues. You know, it's a lot of additional work. So I think production managers and line producers are really struggling this year. It's become incredibly demanding on their time and on their, their mental capacity. So I think we all need to be even nicer to them than we have been in the past because they're really, really feeling the brunt of it. And I mean, just you, you mentioned at the top, you know, it's a time of challenges, but opportunities as well. I mean, how are you looking, I guess, into next year and, and where where you might take the company and, and what the industry might throw up against you as well? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, is it boom or is it bust, I guess, is the question. And it's a definitely a boom time, but it's never been more competitive, you know, for all the reasons we know. The collapse of independent film has 
meant that many, many more producers have entered the marketplace with with highly packaged projects that are very, very head turning. If you go, you know, if you go to the BBC drama briefing day, I think somebody told me. I think Manda Levin told me that two years ago there were sixty independent producers there, and now there's something like two hundred individual production entities there. So there's been an enormous boom in the number of independent producers. About the amount of talent that's about hasn't increased. The number of actors hasn't increased. So there's a huge demand on talent. Uh, there's huge opportunity, but there's huge competition. So you've just got to you've just got to come up with undeniable concept shows, scripts, talent that can be produced on what on the finance you know you can raise. And as I said, if you've got Game of Thrones, not Game of Thrones, if you've got Lord of the Rings running around with half a billion pounds, that puts enormous pressure on marketplace. So I guess we are continuing our, our, our pushing to one hour. We've always made four or five half hour comedies a year. We're going to continue to do that. And now we're looking at you know doubling down on what we've been doing in the US. So we have you know I think we're going to the ink's not dry the contract, but I think we're going to finally make the American version of Friday Night Dinner, which is called Dinner with the Parents. It's written by John Beckerman, who's a who's sort of the American Robert Popper, I guess. And unusually, I think what we will end up doing there is having an American writing team writing it, having an American cast acting in it, and shooting it in the UK. So building an American house finding locations in the UK that we can double for the US and we'll make that show in the UK for a US company. And then we have the American version of Mum, which is about to pitch. We've got, that's written by Tracy Letts and has uh, Laurie Metcalf attached to it. We're taking that out probably in the new year and we are in development on the US version of Time Wasters uh, for ABC with um, Lauren Ashley Smith, showrunning, who is um, the Emmy-nominated showrunner from the Black Lady Sketch Show for HBO, who's a phenomenally talented uh, individual. So try to push that, those either change formats or original shows for, for North America is a big piece of work for us. And we, you know, hopefully out of three of them, one of them will go. I think Dinner with the Parents will definitely go. We're just getting into the nitty gritty, but hopefully Mum and Time Wasters will go as well. Um, so, that, you know, that and then more more shows for the UK. Finally, I mean, how do you find the American market at the moment navigating that as a as a brick going over there and, and their hugely consolidated market now where, you know, you've kind of, I guess they're mostly producing in-house for their own streamers I mean how do you find that coming from the outside and, and pitching them shows as are they all um, going to be co-productions or and you kind of lose out in, in one way or another it just, it just depends you, you just need to be incredibly nimble and incredibly flexible on what you do so we have a we have a studio relationship with CBS Studios for our half hour formats uh, we also have a relationship with ITV Studios USA with Philippe Maigret and the team there for originals and then co-studioing or you know it just depends you just got to be flexible I mean, I, I think the buyers are absolutely overwhelmed um, with pitches because they all that happened during lockdown was they took enormous number of Zoom pitches. So I think they're burnt out. And probably now is not the time to pitch an American network. I, I would caution waiting until next year because I think they're just done. They're swamped. They hate Zoom pitches. They're dealing with all the productions that were, were, were shut down last year and all the new stuff they commissioned. So their capacity to take, to take on new business, I think, is, as we head towards the end of the year, pretty slow. Slim, so we're not pitching anything until next year now. But you know, it's, it's great. They're incredibly responsive. There's lots of places to go. British talent's never been hotter. Thank you, Jesse Armstrong and Fiona Bridge and cast and crew of Ted Lasso and all of that. That's all come out of the UK. So you're, you're at a distinct advantage being a UK producer with UK talent going into that marketplace because you have a distinct advantage. 
French miniseries The Rope, recently screened as part of the London Film Festival's inaugural programme of events, focusing on TV shows. The fantasy drama, a co-production between France's Arte, Le Film de l'Instant and Belgium's Versus production, sees a team of scientists face a test of faith and survival when they discover a mysterious and seemingly endless rope in the middle of a Norwegian forest. Co-creators and screenwriters Eric Forestier and Dominique Rocher, who also directed the miniseries, spoke to Nico Franks about the philosophical themes of the drama, which is being distributed by France's Wild Bunch TV, and why the show wouldn't have existed as a three-parter if it had been made for a streamer. The Rope is an adaptation from a German book written by uh, Stefan Ausdemsippen. And the book takes place in the uh, 19th century and the characters are farmers. And uh, they find a rope, uh, an infinite rope into the forest around their village. We like the concept, but not necessarily the um, how it was uh, handled after that. I mean, the book obviously has qualities, but it could be uh, more modern and fresher uh, in regard to, uh, for instance, what the what the men or the women from the village are supposed to be doing. Men are the ones following the rope. Women are the ones staying at the village. And obviously it goes bad for, the, for both groups. And we wanted to uh, mix the characters a little bit more in sync with a more modern adaptation, a more modern take. The idea was to to tackle those questions, like uh, how far do we go as a civilization? Can we turn back, literally? So those questions are literally addressed uh, by the characters in the show. Uh, can we, <laughs> do we know when to stop, when to turn back? Uh, maybe, and that, and that could be applied to, yeah, modern, civilization, modern technologies. And we thought it would be interesting to put that kind of questions into the hands of people which are educated and yeah, smart people who were supposedly better equipped to handle these situations, but actually they're not. Were some of those those themes you just mentioned, so were those kind of the universal themes that you were kind of looking for um, for a show? And is is that potentially what gives it its international potential? Maybe maybe the the cast is uh, is um, as it's okay. Well, what, yeah, one of the of the first elements in writing the scripts was this vision of a station, scientist station in the middle of a forest, and this is the kind of place where you get international crew. So in when we wrote, we, we found that, that it would be interesting as Europeans to have a European crew. So actors and characters coming from different countries of Europe. We need to represent uh, Europe in fiction and see characters, European characters working together, talking to each other, because fiction has some kind of a responsibility to to, to represent the world we live in. Yeah. And we feel part of something larger than just our own country. And we wanted to uh, see how that, I mean, it's a my microcosm uh, of some sort, you know, this this uh, scientific facility that gathers people from all over Europe. Um, so it was, yeah, a hopefully not too on the nose way for us to talk about that. And something I believe in is that the smallest stories, like the more, um, you know, um, yeah, the uh, specific. Close, yeah, the more specific and the more close you get, the more international 
you, universal you, you can talk to everybody in the world if you tell a story about something very very specific very grounded and this is the kind of stories we were aiming at like um, i think the rope and by, by the concept of the rope we, we talk to any audience in, in the world and what about the decision to make it a three-parter was that a kind of you know based on resources it really started uh, for me uh, as an adaptation of the book, like as a um, telefilm, uh, as a one uh, 90 minutes kind of thing. And then we, as developing the story, we went to a six part, six one hour uh, episode. And then it felt like, no, it's too much. We don't have enough uh, for that. So I, I believe that the story guided us. And uh, with a, it was a constant conversation with Arte, the network, uh, and the producers. And we find out in the end, after a long development time, that the three part was the right for this, frame yeah, yeah. for this story. Yeah, because it's almost a relief as a viewer sometimes when you see that there's only three episodes. But then once you get started, you, once you get started, you want there to be more. Yeah, um, one thing uh, we have for us is that you know that you're going to have uh, the, the end of the story. Uh, in three hours, you're gonna know what's how the end rope, how the rope ends, and how the story ends for each characters. Which I I know it can be it can be like a... frustrating for some. Yeah, if you, if you know it's gonna be like five seasons, you don't get involved. The yeah, same way. at the same time, that's a, a little disheartening. And uh, at least we're not uh, taking that chance. Yeah, I believe there is a real future for this kind of. Uh, they already exist, but uh, this is something. There is an audience for miniseries, obviously. That don't want to spend so much time on TV shows. And so there isn't a yeah, there is a completely closed-ended, you know, miniseries. There's not going to be season two. No. <laughs> rest, rest assured. No, well, uh, <laughs> whether you yeah. liked it or not, it's ending. The, the the door we left open is that as creatives we want to keep working together because we liked working together on the rope so we could do like something creatively uh, follow up but not uh, the story is closed as you said and uh, there wouldn't be another story with those characters it was the focus of a, a session at series mania in lille uh, fairly recently about the potential for it to be remade as an international format i suppose you're keen for people to see your version but would you be intrigued to see international versions of the rope oh yeah sure i'm very open to that uh, as a director and also a writer with eric i think we i'm it's, it's not going to be the same so i'm always intrigued as you said and interested in the works of others uh, on the same material um yeah it's like classical music you know you like to hear different interpretations of the same piece yeah so why not that would be interesting and it's a bit of a hypothetical question but say this was a show for a streamer do you think they would have pushed for it to be longer and um kind of pushed for there to be potential for more seasons given that their business model is is slightly different and they are all about kind of hanging on to subscribers. I mean, it would have never been made uh, for, a, for a big streaming platform, not in this format. Like Netflix or Amazon or Apple TV, they're, they're trying, like you said, they're trying to hook the viewers and keep them uh, tuned in. So a three-parter is probably not that interesting in that in that respect what, what is uh because, well the 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 alternative will, would be uh to make a like a 
something that would, that would have more seasons, more episodes. And they do make six parts. Yeah, six parts, but not not necessarily mini series. I mean, they're more. I mean, they do uh, that kind of thing, but they are more. Obviously, they are more interested in keeping you tuned in, and they want you to binge their their shows. Uh, so a three-parter is kind of uh, it's a lot of investment for the viewers to actually uh, tune out after three episodes. I don't know. So yeah, well maybe uh, Dominique has a different take on that, but I I definitely don't think it could have been made this way outside of Arte. I suppose, but yeah, it's 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 definitely the streamers um, wanting more, but then also you get it with kind of cable channels in the in the US when it's a they say it's a limited series but then actually if it's if it's a successful limited series it comes back who knows who knows if we're not going to see a season two uh, for uh, Mayor Beast Town for instance you know which was supposed to which was released as a mini series how do you feel about the the kind of the boom in French language content that's going on at the moment is that um that's been it's kind of been bubbling away for a while now but obviously there's more and more examples of french shows that are traveling internationally how is that impacting the work that you guys do uh, what i find interesting is that the language the, the french language doesn't seem to be a problem anymore uh, internationally and uh, that's very interesting because for a long time you needed to be in english um, to to export films and yeah i we can see now that Netflix or uh, I don't know other platforms are, are producing uh, yeah, French content, and uh, I found that very very interesting. Yeah. yeah, it came out as a as a misunderstanding, I believe. Uh, in the first, I mean, uh, when when they, they, I think this trend started with. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it started with Dark, the German show that Netflix had produced and intended for German audiences. And suddenly they had a, an international global hit that they did not expect. And they realized the potential of national uh, speaking content. And that was actually, I mean, they had more of that with uh, Casa de Papel, obviously other shows probably like Lupin well and now it's uh, Squid Games which is Korean Squid and it Games. doesn't stop anyone from look uh, watching it so yeah language they, is not a barrier yeah they, they 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 I mean they accidentally uh discovered uh um penicillin you know like oh guys we've made something with that was not planned but it's it's working so let's keep doing that yeah Squid Game is a very interesting one and at MIPCOM a few weeks ago, everyone was talking about it there. And but it was interesting, not that actually that many people there had seen it yet. I've uh, seen like four episodes. I'm not that partial to it. I mean, uh, we talked about it the other day and we were like, yeah, that that's uh, that's a riff on, on some of our on, on one of our favorite films, which is Battle Royale. And uh, and it it looks like I mean, so far, I mean, I haven't seen the whole season of course but it doesn't bring uh, something much fresher to the table from what i've seen but i could be wrong and it's only my opinion anyway uh but it's interesting that yeah uh national content is uh, getting uh, such a, a big audience now i mean it, that means that you can 
deal with pretty much anything uh, theme-wise uh, that you can be, like Dominique said earlier, very specific about hotbed topics and issues from your um, environment and still find that uh, you're able to communicate to people uh, on the other side of the world. So that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, but I haven't seen it yet. But what I from what I heard, what I found interesting is that people uh, saw that uh, after what we leave past year, everyone wanted to something bright and something like uh, that would relieve us from the darkness of the world. And from what I've heard, Squid Game is a very dark show and very violent and and very like. Uh, and so I found that very interesting. That uh, maybe we need some catharsis, like some things that brings uh, that help us deal with the violence of the world, with this kind of stories too. So this is what. I, yeah, and that's and that's something that that we're very. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we can provide. Yeah, we can definitely. <laughs> you want some. Darkness and violence. Look, look no further. <laughs> What's the uh, kind of among the kind of French kind of artistic um, media community from your perspective? How are how are they feeling about the continued kind of rise of streamers like Netflix in France and now like Disney Plus? Is there a lot of interest in working with those streamers, or is there a, a recognition of a need to kind of maintain you know links with the domestic broadcasters like France TV and Arte? I'm not sure how to answer that because it's very subjective. Um, but I, my answer would be that. Netflix is producing things in France that, uh, but we still don't have the kind of films that they did in the US, like uh, Uncle James or Marriage Story, The Irishman. Like these huge um, directors, uh, I don't believe uh, French um, recognized directors are going to Netflix right now. Uh, but uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't I, think they are. And uh, no, not just yet. Maybe this is a step that needs to be made from these platforms for uh, because uh, in France we have a very strong author culture, like uh, and we maybe those platforms need to make that move. Uh, but I don't know; they are going very well. So I'm just saying that as a personal point of view, I, I would like to see this kind of things on platforms too. Uh, because I believe they are succeeding in the entertainment part. Uh, very well, and uh, maybe we are waiting for the more other parts. Um, that's that's my take on it. From a, the perspective of streaming, there's lots of other streaming services coming up, targeting you know, smaller audiences, but more niche, which is interesting as well, and not uh, offering lots of opportunities. Yeah, there's definitely a, a demand. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a. I mean, it's a good time to get creative, uh, if that's what you mean, uh, because you can find pretty much uh, any, um, I mean, streamers are, are looking for pretty much anything that gets uh, made today. I mean, for years we've been struggling with it and, and, and France has been blessed in that regard because we, we've had a very dynamic uh, cinema industry and TV industry, but still it was sometimes hard to get your, um, TV series or film made, and now uh, it's it's almost like you you don't you don't have any excuses now. You know, 
I mean, if you want to get something made and you have an interesting and fresh concept, you'll probably find uh, a place to show it. So that's a, yeah, I think that's a good thing because it, it, it makes us more free and more, uh, it gives us more opportunities to get creative. Yeah, but on the other side, there are so many things being produced right now. Mm. Like uh, you can call it content, you can call it films, you yeah. can call it uh, TV shows, whatever. Uh, um, it's it's get, it's getting hard to 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 navigate to navigate <laughs> and to know what what where the good stuff is. Yeah, as a, as an audience, you're yeah. you're you're very much um, solicited. I mean, constantly it's constant constantly appealing to you, and and it it can be hard to choose from so many quality uh, high end shows. So uh, yeah, if the competition is really strong. Um, we can we can we can have two takes on it. I mean, you can consider that it's bound to uh, as in uh, it, any ecosystem. It's bound to uh, push people to get better and more imaginative and more creative. But you have the downside of it, which is you have to feed the tube you know and that can lead you to uh, do just that which is not so interesting uh, in the end i still believe believe audiences will pick them apart you know the better shows will probably survive this yeah. flood of content and the others will they'll be uh, forgotten And it puts, uh, because we're coming from films, both of us, and it's kind of put the question out there of uh, how the cinema is going to react to all of that and how it's going to define itself in the next 10, 10 years. Like, um, what is special to, what what are we going to look after? Why, why are we going to, to a movie uh, theater? To a movie theater now. What are you looking for? What kind of experience are you looking for when there is so much... Uh, to see on your computer, on your laptop. On so your... what is special about films now? And I think this is a question needs to be answered <laughs> very yeah. soon. Yeah, cinema is being, uh, is being called upon uh, by this huge boom in TV. So that's interesting. Yeah. Do you think it's as simple as putting more TV shows in the cinema? So having screenings of, you know, two episodes of such and such. Yeah, I don't know about that, but uh, it's definitely an interesting experience. Uh, the, the post-production of the TV show was so well done that you could screen it. And it's all, and it, it's all, I would say, it's at Saint route. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I mean, it, it, it doesn't pale uh, when you, when you uh, screen in a real So yeah, as long as we, as we keep the standard of right. production, this eye, You can screen it in a theater, and, if, and I, for us, it was an interesting experience because the audience—you have the audience experience of people watching something together, which has, I believe, we are kind of forgetting right now, as as people more and more are gonna watch uh, films and TV shows in their homes. And when you get a, a gasp of all the audience at the same time, it's always something special. Yeah, it's priceless. And I believe uh, this might be yeah, the beginning of the answer of what we are going to look forward into the movie theaters nowadays.
Rock Camp the Movie is a documentary film released earlier this year about a rock and roll fantasy camp in the US where wannabe stars get to play on stage alongside their heroes. Slash, Roger Daltrey, Gene Simmons and Alice Cooper are just some of those to feature. An LA-based distributor, Principal Media, is now taking the title out to market. Chief Executive Gary Rosenson spoke to Clive Whittingham about his very personal connection to the film, taking over his post during the pandemic and his plan to move Principal into the AVOD and Fast Channel space. I'm Gary Rosenson, CEO of Principal Media, uh, which is a company in Beverly Hills that licenses TV content of just about every genre to channels and digital platforms around the world. Principal Media has been around for 15 years, but uh, it's it's really been a successful company in distribution. And uh, my job in coming in has been to elevate its presence, obviously drive more sales, but uh, also expand some of what the company's going to be doing uh, in the future. But um, as of today, we are primarily um, content distribution. And uh, that's that's how we got to Rock Camp, which is one of the documentaries we're distributing. You um, came in uh, relatively recently, quite an odd time to be uh, joining a distribution company with no distribution markets and, and lockdown and all of that horrors that we've been having. How is it? How have you gone about that? How has it been? It's a great question. I feel like I could write a white paper and probably should at some point on um, coming in to lead a group or a company in this case during a pandemic because it's tricky. You know, when you're not in an office and you're trying to understand exactly how this company runs and, and all the things that you normally pick up, just being in an office, being able to hear what sales team is talking about or what anybody in, in the group is, is doing and discuss things over at a water cooler. That's the normal process. And then suddenly you're at home and nobody's in an office. And uh, so you're right. Right. It was an odd time to come in, but um, I, I once I officially became CEO, there's a small transition time. Um, I started with daily daily Zooms, which the company did not have. And I'm sure it was probably maybe a, a jarring uh, jolt for a lot of people, but it was necessary, I think, for them and me. Like They needed to understand sort of what I was doing and I needed to understand what they were doing. And it replaced being in the office. So we did that for some time. We don't do that anymore, but it helped me get off and running and then allow me to understand how the business operates and, and make a lot of changes, which I did. I wanted to give more empowerment to the team, um, to allow them to make more decisions, eliminate bottlenecks, give them more sales tools like CRMs and strengthen media rights management and more visibility, you know, more visibility so everybody knew what everybody else was doing. Um, so anyway, that was my experience coming in during a pandemic. How has it been as a distributor, like I say, without those physical markets were coming out? Finally, we've had a physical MIPCOM of sorts, not a not a, a massive one. But but how is it, how do distributors go about their job when you uh, you can't go to markets and, and sell your wares? You know, it's it's so it's interesting. Um, I, I think first of all, we're at MIPCOM right now. We do have a one of the things I also did when I came in was I took us from an LA only team to a virtual team that has now people on the East Coast and one in London who is actually at MIPCOM. And he's reported some good things back from his meetings. But having said that, I, 
I think the question is certainly valid for every distributor out there. And I will say it always just comes down to relationships and having the right team with the right relationships to be able to get people on the phone. In some ways, I feel like as the pandemic has changed every business, I feel that so much was happening via phone and email before and so much relied on these big markets and the markets, I think I'm hoping come back and will still be critical, but at the same time, because we we very much want the markets and just to get it out there, nothing will ever replace face-to-face. I think everybody gets that. But at the same time, there's a new face-to-face over Zoom as, as we're doing right now. And as so many people are doing that allow you more instant access to people in a different way that wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. So I hope that what comes out of all of it is this hybrid of I can get people on the phone or our sales team can get people on Zoom when they need to, but also reinforce everything at the markets. That would be, I think, the grand slam in this business. The doc that we um, that has brought us together uh, to, to talk today is is called Rock Camp the Movie. Um, can you <laughs> set it? Can you uh, set it up for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, rock Camp the Movie is um, it's about rock and roll fantasy camp, and um, it's it features the rock stars and uh, it's 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 a sweet movie because it's got a lot of heart and it's transformational for people who go to rock fantasy camp which is again it's 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 really a weekend where you go and you work with rock stars the people who you might have idolized as kids and then you get to perform live with your little band that you create and with them and it's just transformational and, and so the movie features uh, a dad and his autistic son who is normally very withdrawn but he straps on a guitar and suddenly he's shredding and coming out of his shell, which is beautiful. There's a techie uh, exec who's over 50 and he almost made it as a drummer way back, but gave up on his dreams. And then he went to rock camp and you see him in tears explaining to his daughters that he thinks he's going to go back to trying to play live music again, because this is what he always felt he was meant to do. And then there's a mom who's who's in finance for a real estate company, but just happens to be a badass drummer. And, and she's out there. And, and so for all those who feel like it's a pipe dream and it's too late for me, I think this, this movie says otherwise, that this is an outlet that it's exhilarating it's transformative and and it's it's achievable some really big names um i was moving around the website earlier there's some some big names involved in the camp and 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 the doc do you want to do you want to drop a few yeah yeah look i uh so just to get it out there there's the who the stones aerosmith van halen kiss heart the eagles like members of all these iconic classic bands that are the ones that today are still playing in arenas right you know for those that are still together but um you know, pr- there are members of each of them. Roger Daltrey of The Who was somebody who jumped in early. And I think that opened the door for like a lot of rock stars, Slash from Guns N' Roses, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry from Aerosmith. And so uh, if you're especially a classic rock fan, um, I think this is one of those things where these rock stars who have been playing for decades wanted to give back, I mean, is what they say. And, and they're reconnecting with their joy of playing by working with others who, who want to experience that with them. I mean, they can go and get adulation by getting on stage, but this is a more intimate, I think, reconnection for them. So it's interesting. Who's uh, the production company behind it? What's the origins of the project? How did you guys get involved? The, the origins of the project, uh, I'll get to that first, which is um, for, for, for me, uh, having gone to Rock Fantasy Camp, myself, that was really the origin for principal media to get involved. I'm not sure that we would have found this movie otherwise. I I actually 
went through uh, rock fantasy camp when I turned 50 and had a pretty transformational experience myself. And so uh, I got, I befriended David Fishoff, who is the founder of rock fantasy camp and a little bit about David, because he really is the one behind the rock camp and the movie itself. He's the sweetest guy. He's, he's a real mensch. He created rock fantasy camp 25 years ago. He has all these amazing stories, of course, from not just from rock camp, but he was a big sports agent before that. He got Ringo Starr off his couch and started up the all-star band, which has been touring ever since. And, and rock camp's really been, I think, his baby because it's been a big hit. And look, you know you've made something big when your idea ends up on The Simpsons with Homer at Rock Fantasy Camp and Mick Jagger voicing that episode as a counselor. So he's hit pop culture gold with that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just done really well. And, and so he, he got a production company and, and, uh, and, and they created this film. Actually, the film is really a lot of the footage over his 25 years. But mainly he got Doug Blush and, and some others who worked on um, other documentaries that, were, that have won awards like 20, 20 Feet from Stardom, I believe it was called, um, to create this, this, this interesting documentary that tries to capture the magic. And it's, it's I'll say this, you have to go and person to rock fantasy camp to really experience the magic and i know david is always looking for more people to go to that but in the meantime i feel like the movie does a pretty good job of telling that story uh, i've got to ask um who what did you sing who did you sing with i want to i want to know about your experience <laughs> i will not be singing on on this uh no i won't, wait, I, I won't, I go, am... I won't go that far and make you sing but but tell us about it so you know oh, okay i will i will look i'll start off by saying uh look i think so many kids who grew up especially in the 70s and 80s but it's really any any decade. But I remember blasting music in my room and I feel like a lot of us can remember picking up a, a tennis racket maybe and pretending like you're Eddie Van Halen suddenly in the mirror, right? And, and while your fantasy may be to be on stage with screaming fans, the reality is that's not going to happen for most of us. You're going to go to college, you're going to get a full-time job, maybe get married, have kids. And so, um, yeah, that's never going to happen. And then you get this email and suddenly it's uh, the one for me that connected was, do you want to play the music of the Beatles, specifically Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, with Cheap Trick, who will be there. And, um, oh, wait, I love the Beatles. I love Cheap Trick. I, I think I'm doing this. And so, <laughs> look, I, I think we know now that life is not about buying more things. It's about having experiences. I think a lot of us have seen that or read that and learned it. And it's one thing to say, oh, that sounds right. But I, I, for this, I wanted to experience how it feels to play live. And it wasn't even a thought because, again, that was never going to happen for me. And the next thing I knew, I was on a stage at the famous whiskey a go-go on Hollywood Sunset Strip. There's a packed house and I'm going, this is happening. And so I, I, and by the way, I was not even a musician. So we were the only beginner band at Rock Fantasy Camp. For a lot of people, they go and they're already, you know, they have friends and they play all the time. There was one beginner band, that was me and 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 and, and my little group. And it was the weirdest band in the world. We had a 15-year-old girl who shredded on guitar. She was amazing. We had a graphic designer. We had a 60-year-old banking executive. And then we had one real rock counselor. And it makes for the weirdest band in the world but here we are in a studio we're getting songs down so that we don't suck when we play and we had all the ups and downs of a real band we had arguments over what songs we'd play I'll, without sharing who it was one bandmate I think was off their meds and, and walked out at one point and I thought this is great this is just like you know VH1's behind the music we're already breaking up in spectacular fashion like a real band but it all came back together and, and, and we all did it and, and the high is just indescribable 
world. So, and, and my thing was drums. I played drums in this. So I had to pick up drums within about four or five months. The doc, feature doc, where is it airing and where are you guys distributing it? What's the sort of right situation with it at the moment? So Rock, you know, Rockham, the movie, which I'll add has, uh, it's gotten great reviews. Uh, It's got 94% on Rotten Tomatoes and um, it was number one on iTunes, Apple iTunes documentary for a while. Uh, And and so it had been distributed to all of the on-demand platforms, you know, the um, actually iTunes and, and and Amazon and, and sort of where you could buy it on demand. That was the first window out. And then after that, we, we've we really just started going out there in a bigger way to distribute this to channels and any um, digital platforms that are interested. And so the premiere was actually, interestingly enough, with uh, DirecTV, which has a 4K channel. And, and they, it's funny, they started out by saying, why do we want to see amateurs playing music? And I said, watch the documentary. It's not just amateurs playing music music and then they watched it and they go we got it and we want it and so they they really stepped up and um and we got that uh, a 4K premiere with them, but we still have um, tons of rights available, both U.S. worldwide. And we're having lots of discussions right now that we are uh, trying to close in on some deals, but uh, it's still available and it's still out there. And uh, we're excited to see where else we can get this. What's that market for feature docs like at the minute? I've been at C21 10, 11 years. And um, when, when I started here, whenever I spoke to buyers, factual buyers and said, what do you want and what do you not want? The only thing they were all unanimous on on what they didn't want was feature docs. They said, we can't place them. We can't market them. They come and go in 90 minutes. You know, Nat Geo channels like that just shook their heads. That that has completely turned around in the time that I've been at at C21, possibly driven by Netflix, you could argue. It seems to be a really buzzy market. I mean, how is it for you guys as as distributors trying to flog feature docs at the minute? It's been really good. We, We have, I mean, we have documentaries of almost every genre. We have a really deep library and a lot of it is 4K, although the 4K piece of it is um, something that's still part of, it's just emerging, uh, obviously, outside of Asia, it's just, it's a little more challenging, but interestingly, Rock Camp was a 4K sale, the first one out of the gate. But documentaries in general are, are doing pretty well. It obviously depends on on um, uh, which docs we're talking about, but we have uh, had a lot of success and a lot of our catalog is made up of documentaries. I understand why it was difficult for a lot of networks for a while, because it's, it's a one-off thing. You're hoping to get a series out there and somebody gets hooked on the first episode and, and these, there's sometimes you do get those comments of there's the effort of, of we have to market this thing. And I think what I'm finding is that sometimes they want to build an event around it. Like with, even with Rock Camp for that matter, um, it's, do you have a lot of digital extras that we can have? Well, yeah, this there's 25 years worth of footage on this one in particular. That's not the case for all documentaries. And and can we build some sort of an event around this is what certain channels are, are saying, I think out there uh, and, and, and try to prop this up without stressing their team too much. So we are finding that there is more interest in documentaries. And, and I think you're right, actually, that Netflix and, and um, many of the other SVODs ha- have, have made that the case. Uh, 
because it allows them to hit certain target demos and, and, and niches that they wouldn't have otherwise hit, and they can hit it pretty quickly. People love documentaries. I mean, the one um, that I loved, which isn't one of ours, but the one about uh, the fire Festival, <laughs> just to get yeah. back to another music doc, is fantastic. So I don't know that you could experience what, what happened at fire Festival without a documentary. There's no series <laughs> that would do that justice. So docs can do that. And, and what we find is there's just a certain amount of passion. These aren't always executives at networks or, or production companies who are making decisions about what's going to sell. With documentaries, what I do love is somebody had a passion to feature this thing that maybe nobody was ever going to make a show about. That's the beauty of it. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning in to the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.